Thanks, Nandi. And uh, thank you all for coming and, and for showing me such an awesome, warm, uh, um, Vermonty welcome. And um, today I, uh, I, I, um, I waterproofed my boots and I read the J. Peterman catalog and I wrote some J. Peterman catalog parody and, and then I read some Angels in America and then I wrote some of my novel and, and that was just about right, I think, you know? So, uh, and, I, and, then, and then talked, uh, talked throughout about what, what you guys are working on and, and sat and, and um, um, fellowshiped and so that was, this has been really great. So, um, all right, so I think I'm gonna, in the spirit of, of, uh, of sharing and sharing new work and sharing lots of different kinds of work, like I just mentioned, I'm, I'm going to read a couple different things, some short stories, a little bit of a new novel, which I've never read before ever, and, um, and a little bit of threats, and I'm, I think I'm going to do that in like 30 minutes, and then maybe we'll talk after that, um, if you like. Okay. <clears throat> This story is called Horse Girls. Take Misty, for instance. Hair, a waterfall of hair, in a turtleneck with Misty, embroidered in lariat white. And she's never been to Texas, but she always wants to go. She wants to see what it's like, you know? She bets she'd like it. For Misty, everything is expressed as a question. She believes that forgiveness is a myth perpetuated by losers. Misty's horse is named Appledew. Misty's horse is named Appledew. Appledew is a big-bodied, half-Arabian gelding who likes green grapes and sadness. In Computer Lab, Misty does a Google image search for big-bodied, half-Arabian gelding and finds a picture of a mahogany horse with white boots, a brindled horse throwing her hair back, a chestnut horse with hair like a woman, another mahogany looking direct at the camera, a black horse throwing his bridle, a stamp-sized picture of a girl riding a chestnut, another mahogany overcanted in a dale, a brush dark mahogany draped with roses, a horse with a pinewood color standing beside a woman holding a ribbon, a teak running alongside a sugar maple, an oak mounting an eastwood poplar, a Norwood spruce in a pen, and there beside is Appledew, her photo taken on the occasion of her purchase, running to touch the wind, hooves half-lifted mid-gallop, and she is the very most beautiful horse on the internet at that moment, and Misty viewing her there feels the pride of connection and expresses the sentiment aloud. That's the most beautiful horse on the internet, she says, when a boy leans over skeptically to debate Appledew in her place on the internet. Even, even that boy concedes that she's a good-looking horse in truth. Misty waits for her mom to pick her up from school. Her mom, who filled her toddling bed with stuffed ponies and had her in jodhpurs before she could walk, who used her legal knowledge and experience to successfully argue to Misty's father that a horse was a kind of private education and she would rather the girl raised by the stable than by these places where kids lorded over one another and pursue their privilege and the concept of achievement? Wouldn't it be nice if all, if all our child had a, a connection to a breathing creature with a chance of empathy? When Misty's mother picks her up in the lecture, she sees their future, which is that afternoon the car crash onto the feeder road, the one lined with breeder ranches and horses of every different type, bucking junipers and cedars curious over the crunched metal, mesquites curling overhead, and Misty finds her blood soaked through her shirt sleeve, and in her blood she gets very close. In her blood are horses, thousands of them. Look how they amble and bolt. So that's, that's horse girls. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's do... Um, 
Let's do how he felt. I love this woman, the man thought to himself. What should I do to prove my love? He bought a billboard by the main road and ascended its ladder with a can of paint. But the panel was much larger than he had imagined, and he could only stretch to reach the lower third. I live this bath mat, a mother read for her child as they drove by. The man rented a plane and hired a pilot. He had his message printed on a massive banner designed to span behind the craft in flight. But the pilot was an inexperienced crop duster and a drunk, and he rigged the banner upside down and backwards. People on the beach craned their necks to look. A pair of jet skis collided, killing three. The man rented a movie theater, but the reels were switched and his invited guests puzzled over a sex education video from 1964. He composed a song and taught it to a children's choir, but they contracted food poisoning at a pizza party and spent the evening drinking Gatorade and playing video games. He wrote it into a sermon, but the pastor confused love with worship and the girl with a fallible God and threw the whole thing out of sacrilege. Discouraged, the man ascended his billboard's ladder. The metal columns of the board groaned in the wind. The man wanted to share. He knew that if they only understood, the population would be forever changed. He rested his head against the billboard. He heard in the protests of the steel a message from the mechanized world. He thought it was a love song, but he was mistaken. That is how he felt. So some of these are quite short. Um, and I think I'm going to read a, a little bit of Threats, which is also kind of short as a, as a, as a chapter book. Um, it's got 72 or 76 of them chapters, I mean, and, um, and, and each of them I wanted, when I started the project, I wanted each of them to stand alone as their own short story, um, because I was writing only short stories at the time, and this was one of the first times, uh, although not the very first time, that I had written a novel, and, and so I, I kind of thought of it that way, as, as a many standalone parts to create a whole. Um, I don't think it needs an introduction, but we'll see. <coughs> This is chapter 17. David stood beside his wife at their wedding reception. The event was well attended, in part because it was held at an old country buffet during the dinner rush. Their invited guests didn't seem to mind the $7.99 charge. David had just taken on more debt by buying his dental office, in addition to what he paid monthly for his mother's care, in addition to her old legal bills. Franny and David had been married by the justice that afternoon, and she was still wearing the white lace skirt that had made her knees look like the speckled hams under heat lamps at the buffet. Patrons of the restaurant wandered into their corner to shake David's hand and tell Franny that she looked lovely. A child gave Franny a fistful of gummy bears from the ice cream station. The young husband of one of David's dental hygienists brought a cooler of beer. David's father returned from the dinner line with a plate heaped with meat. Pig to pork, he said. He shook his son's hand and picked up a rolled silverware napkin from the table. Live with meaning and die old. Three empty plates at the table held corsages as symbols of Franny's parents and David's mother, who had moved herself into a woman's home when David was very young. He couldn't recall exactly when his mother had gone to the home, and he and his father rarely visited. When they did, she always gave David something she had made, a card or an ornament, out of the same type of construction paper her son had used in his kindergarten class. Once, the keepsake was a picture she had drawn of David in red and blue marker. 
His mother had been a math teacher and was the only truly calculating element across the entire course of David's life. She expressed no interest in ever meeting Franny. On their wedding day, his mother called the old country buffet and the newlyweds passed the phone back and forth while standing at the hostess station. Everyone got a little too drunk and kept eating. They put away plates of meat and baked beans and iceberg salads with ranch dressing. A distant cousin ate only creamed corn. David and Franny sat at the table with his father and the hygienist and her husband. David's father lifted a spoon of mashed potatoes. Once this was all underground, he said. The hygienist's husband ringed his big arm around David's neck and told him it was good to marry a strong woman who could get herself out of trouble. David imagined Franny pinned under a grain thresher, hefting it overhead into a hayloft. At the end of the evening, Franny placed a dish of pudding by one of her parents' memorial plates and started to cry. The guests had mostly left, save for a patron of the restaurant named Chuck, who produced a flask of whiskey and sat with his back to the wall. Franny wiped her hands with her mother's memorial napkin and took a pull from the offered flask. That night, Franny and David lay in, a, lay in bed together, immobile from the pleasures of the buffet. She slept and he examined the muscles twitching under her skin. In those early years, Franny's body lacked the twin mysteries of scent and softness that it initially allured and eventually drove him from the bedrooms of his few previous girlfriends. His wife's scent that night was of a wet rock, as if she had been created from the stream that ran behind his childhood home. Oh, sweet Franny. <coughs> I think I would like to read in the moment next. Um, yeah. This is going to be one that will be in, in gut shot. It had been a memorable date, particularly after such a long line of failures. Turns out they had hidden the same punk tapes in the back of their closets as teenagers and had always secretly wanted to work as photographers for nature magazines. Neither had been to Europe and both dropped an ice cube in their morning cup of coffee. Her name was Emily, a name she hated, but Mark found it reminded him of reading picture books with a flashlight beneath the covers in his childhood bed. Emily was the name of a girl hero whose intrepid adventures took her around the world and even underground. It was a far better name anyway than his own, a name which regularly conjured the image of a bucket of black paint thrown against a prison wall. They were both morally but not financially satisfied with their current mid-level organizational positions. They had already discussed the subject at length the week before during a nonprofit conference where they met and hoped to strike out on their own someday, individually. Or together, Mark said, raising his glass, things were going really well. I was hoping you would come up, she said later, once they were outside her apartment. Boy, howdy, he said. And so began their first evening together, in the elevator and then tumbling over the bed and in a pile of her clean laundry, and later unpleasantly wedged between the oven and the refrigerator in a move she claimed was solely for luck. He was fascinated by her textures, a rough spot on the side meat of her buttock, the thin rumpled place on the back of her hand where she had burned herself with oil. She had a little round mass the size of a ball bearing in her left breast. All of this was new to Mark and he was happy to experience it. Your body is tremendous, she said after. 
He didn't feel that his body was much beyond a device which propelled him from breakfast to dinner. It featured a growing paunch and a knee which tricked up before wet weather, and he nearly told her so before realizing that she was happy with him and was trying to be kind, and it had been so long since a woman had tried to be kind with him that he was immediately lulled into peace with her, and they fell asleep right there in the bathtub. A series of successful dates followed. They decided that when they were old, they would buy an RV and take it around the country to attend garlic festivals and state fairs. She bought, brought a bale of fresh hay home from the farmer's market so they could experience what it felt like to take a roll in it. Mark felt in short order that he loved Emily and that he was afraid to lose her, and the two thoughts butted up against one another unpleasantly and spoiled an entire evening because he couldn't eat his dinner for watching her and then fainted on the way into the cab and woke up in her living room, confessing his fears to her while she held a cloth against his forehead. We are connected in this manner, and I'm afraid, he was saying. She swabbed his brow. You must practice the act of connection without attachment. Think of us as two stones together at the bottom of a shallow stream. We jostle against one another. She pushed him gently on the shoulder to illustrate the concept of jostling. Eventually, the stream pulls us apart or covers us with a fine silt. That seems bad, he said. When you truly understand it, it will remove all suffering. She dropped the washcloth into a bowl of cold water she had prepared. His limbs were too heavy to reach for her, and so she stripped him from the waist down right there on the couch and did all the work. Her breast brushed against his cheek, and he visualized the lump inside as a pebble in a stream, which he might observe without attachment. They made vacation plans and trips to see her parents, and he moved his things into her apartment. Mark felt closer to Emily than he had felt to any other person, living or dead, since grade school, when he and a group of boys formed a secret society in the woods behind the Dairy Queen. He tried to imagine himself at eight years old there in the woods, and projected himself in his imaginings into his body and mind, and tried to tell that boy that not thirty years later, he would meet a woman who would give him such a feeling of peace. The young boy listened and then called his older self a gay lord, and Mark said, Fair enough, young Mark, I have become a gay lord of love. He went to the mall and bought Emily a pendant on a long silver chain and presented it to her and recited some Fleetwood Mac lyrics about running into the shadows, and Emily put the necklace on and said it was fine, and they moved in together and split their expenses. He liked to cook and she took out the trash. They both cleaned the bathtub on occasion. It was a pretty good setup. Whenever he faced a problem at work, for example, when his coworker came back from England and put a poster of Stonehenge up over the window and Mark couldn't see the street anymore, Emily reminded him to view the present as a wild element divorced from past and future. If he could place himself in the moment of sitting in the office without recalling the past or anticipating the future, he might see that outside light through the poster, that it threw a greenish shade over their cubicle corner and gave the impression that they were viewing the world through a stained glass. I'd have to remember a time I stood before a church window, he said, thereby entering the past. That is not what this is about, she said. And he saw that she was right, because he couldn't remember what any of it was about, and so already felt better about the poster thing. They were watching Korean-language television at the time. An accident from the cable provider resulted in them receiving only Korean-language television. But after a few disorienting days, they found it highly comforting to observe the dramas without context, and they watched them as children watch adults, taking cues from laughing or weeping alternately and mirroring the gestures. He forgot that they had gone grocery shopping the day before, and he came home with bags of nectarines to add to the rotting pile. Cartons of eggs stacked up in the fridge, and she speculated that she could make a quiche but had distanced herself mentally from the recipe she knew, and so cracked the eggs in a pan and poked them listlessly on the stove until they burned, and she had to throw them out. We should go out with our friends this weekend, he said. We don't have friends, she said. 
The house phone rang and he picked it up. Is my daughter there? A woman asked. Mark realized after a moment, in English. Who is your daughter? Emily is my daughter, she said. Are you her new boyfriend? He was quiet, turning over the idea that Emily had a mother. He imagined a whole gloomy family tree, then imagined taking a chainsaw to the tree and sitting on the stump listening to Fleetwood Mac on a cassette player and waiting for the wood to dry so he could burn it. <coughs> he pulled the phone out of the wall and threw it in the recycling and then picked it out of the recycling and put it in the trash. She followed his lead on clearing the place and at turns brought out to the curb a jar of olives, curtain rods, ice cube trays, an electric guitar, a vacuum cleaner, silverware, her baby pictures, a bag of shampoos collected from hotel rooms, and the hay from the farmer's market which she stuffed into three paper bags. She hired men to remove the couch and the TV, and when she had no cash for payment, they additionally removed a box of silver jewelry. At work, he stood with his nose to the Stonehenge poster until a woman from Human Resources asked him to take a walk with her. She said that his performance had been going sideways lately and that they were looking for someone moving in a more vertical direction. The words coming out of her mouth didn't make sense, and Mark tried taking context clues from the contents of the picture frames in her office. Before she gave him his benefits package, she had to ask him to stop chanting. The walk home was so satisfying, so perfect in the movements of the small animals and in the appearance of flaws in the street, flaws that on further thought were so perfectly placed that they were the proof of a grand design created for his witness. He sat down on the sidewalk to observe the way a banner flapped against a store awning. He sat that way for a few hours, leaning against a mailbox. He returned home to find Emily sitting on a milk crate in the middle of their empty apartment. She was naked from the waist up and examining her bra. What do you think this is, she asked, turning the cup so he could observe the constellation of blood. I have no idea, he said. And indeed, though he combed his memory with a fine tooth, the only lice he turned up were strange thoughts out of place, a hornet lighting on the upper corner of his crib and disgorging the first papered layer of its nest, a woman kneeling before a man, both robed in white, a boy seeming to leap from his bike to bounce off the hood of a passing car. I can't even imagine. That's in the moment. Uh, <coughs> and let me see. I think I'll read the new thing. <sighs> Politeris. Um, okay, so all you need to know about this is that I'm writing about Isidore Duncan, the dancer, and um, and and um, she died in a strange way, but what I'm more interested in is the period in her life between when her two children drowned in the Seine in April of uh, 1913 and um, when she uh, conceived a child uh, with a stranger who she had met um, and asked him, like purposefully, she, she was like, uh, you're, you are this man who will save me in my art and will you conceive this child? A total badass moment in, in real life. And, uh, and then she gave birth to that child and then that child died. So this the span of my novel is starts with that and ends with that. So, um, <laughs> yeah, and um, so so she had her first child with Gordon Craig, who is the son of Ellen Terry, the actress. Gordon Craig was a, a theater guy who put together um, plays and worked with Eleanor Dews and stuff. And I think that's all you probably need to know. <sighs> Letter to Gordon Craig, April 20, 1913, Florence. Ted, 
I sealed the last letter and sent it anyway with the girl, but did forget to add some essential elements which you will no doubt appreciate from your vantage. And so read prior on this letter, and now you're sitting on the proscenium stage. Your Ramelsholm is an Egyptian temple, Dues is your Rebecca, or was that before? The whole population of Florence are actors, I know, and one gets to watch these lovely scenes with them in shop windows and schools. I'm certain your wife keeps you in pale button shirts with clean cuffs and drops a hot lunch at the theater herself, something thin, a broth, a slice of bread. If you're not sitting on the stage, you're smoking a cigarette behind the building. Regardless, Euripides has been on my mind, and I would appreciate it if you might consider a potential staging of Hecuba. Act one, Hecuba paces her chambers fore and aft. Her sense a mounting dread, and the floor's rut below suggests she has taken this path too long. For to choose an apple from a bowl of fruit, something shined on her gown and aft, turns it over in her hand, a dressing gown, something there linen, before placing it on a sill and fore, holding her own body close with arms wrapped round her trunk in a way which invokes to the audience a tree in the orchard from which her fruit emerged and aft, considering the door but held four to her trotting path, her mind's line with the wooden slats and aft, she sees with the audience the items of her home are four strange, and despite their standard position, sapped of the aft, she saw in them before, at which point the man enters with the soaked body of Politerus, whom she sees stage left, as first as Polyxena, but then her son, the body, brought to her, falls over it, a pool of traitorous water, filling the hollow her feet have carved. Screaming at this point, end of act one, much pacing to fill the time prior, you understand. Act two. The home has burned. Its ruin smolders, and Hecuba, their mother, wanders the scene, tracing Doris over and over again into the char of the frame, and Zena, same into the hearth. A memorial in ash too subtle for any audience, but they're repeated. There is no revenge or battle, no sailing for shores as the Greeks departed Troy, their line of faces steady at the prow, no sense of resolution with time or age, no sense of age otherwise. Hecuba seems herself ageless and floating. Perhaps a pane of glass suspends her a foot above the burned scene, and she makes to bury herself in the soot but cannot reach it, and scrabbles the pane like a dog but does not weep, beginning already to sense the futility of anguish, turning on her back and resting there, sleeping a while as the audience grows incrementally more uncomfortable, more attracted to her in sympathy and in equal measure repellent of their own attraction, beginning to shift in their seats, menacing the evening's program in their hands, and then one man calls out from the third or fourth row an agonized moan which emerges seeming without his consent, for he then busies himself coughing, as if to suggest that all instances of congestion might ideally begin with an exclamatory phrase. But the membrane membranous divide is breached and someone else groans a woman disturbed at her proximity to grief and fearing its influence on her, its deadly magic, at which point the crowd altogether makes an oceanic kind of vocalization, gripping the arms of their seats and swaying to stand, rushing the stage and covering Hecuba, pulling her into their depth, their movement in unison, their love and obliterative force. So that's that. <laughs> ah, man. I don't know if it's going to be like more than two acts, but that seems like enough. Um, maybe. <laughs> okay. Um, I've got eight minutes for the reading portion, and then let's talk. Uh, I think I'd like to read 
<sighs> hmm. <clears throat> hmm. I'll read a weird one. It's kind of a barn burner. Um, well, I'll try it. All right, this is called Loop. Let me make sure I have all the pages of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, this is called Loop. You are one man standing barefoot in a grocery store. You regard rows of snack cake cartons stacked like bricks when at that moment your mind begins to go. You knew it in your heart. Your heart is a wall of the same brick repeated. You're standing barefoot because you put your slippers into the coffee bulk bin. Rabbit ears. At home, you call your sister and her voice reminds you of a pancake you dropped on the floor that morning. Because you had no dog, you got on your hands and knees and ate the pancake off the floor. You licked your lips and the floor, and you took a nap in your nap spot. You call your mom and say you don't remember her wearing a lot of denim. Your mom cries because she did wear more denim than you remember. She says your father worked in denim. Your crib was made of denim. He covered it for your safety. Every problem can be traced to attention or its lack, your mom says. As your mom weeps, you watch a video which features a woman facing the camera and talking about yoga, and her nipples straining her costume individually talk in a sea tone of the responsibility of owning animals. As you watch the video, you work your way down each of the numbers in your casual encounters file but receive no response. Hit redial on one number until a bird picks up and tells you to fuck right off, fuck right off. Your heart is a wall of the same brick repeated. A man returns your call and asks if you are the guy who wants a visit. Says he knows a guy, knows a lot of guys actually, and some women. And everyone knows a thing or two about bricks and they're all coming over. You have been surrounded all your life by people concerned for your safety. Construction workers build scaffolding to protect your stupid skull. Drivers stop to allow you to cross in the crosswalk. Every problem in the world can be traced to attention or its lack. The man arrives at your door wearing some serious denim. You carry a folding chair and follow him down into the alley. He has assembled a crowd. He produces an awl and taps it tick tick around the circumference of your neck. Checking out, he says, I've had my days and yours aren't my business. You can't feel it. The man tells the crowd that it's all a good sign. He angles it expertly in the nape of your neck, your shoulders. He is a magician. You smile for the crowd. Your heart's a wall. Your heart is a wall. Mom calls and you answer, but the man is tapping his awl beside your ear, and you can only hear her saying, denim, 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 den, den, denim, 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 den, den, denim, mom, denim, denim, den, 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 um, 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 um. Your collarbone crick cricks and is liberated. The man in denim is whistling home on the range. Word lips aside. You make a moment to fleck on the lean of the nally. The pin sponge in your heart's a wall. The sound brick repeated. The snick, snick, the sound brick. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.